Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Whiteboard Finance Show. Today's guest is Nick Badia. He is an adjunct professor of finance at USC Marshall. He is the author of Layered Money, one of the books that I recommended in my Bitcoin uh, beginner's books that you absolutely must have to read. Um, it's talking about from gold and dollars to Bitcoin and central bank digital currencies. Uh, and he's also now the author of the newsletter, The Bitcoin Layer. He has 41,000 followers on Twitter. Welcome back to the show, Nick. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Marco. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, in a nutshell, just give us a little bit of uh, your background. I know you came from, I know you were a bond guy and then also the um, higher education, which you currently still do. And then how did that transition into becoming an author and then ultimately, you know, the Bitcoin rabbit hole? Sure. So my career started in the fixed income asset management industry. I was working for a couple uh, bond managers. One was a hedge fund. Another was a, a mutual fund and separate account manager. And my roles throughout the years in the industry evolved from uh, an, you know, a trade uh, settlement person, so someone in the op on the operation side, then you know more of a paper pusher to someone actually trading the bonds themselves from an execution standpoint. So someone tells you to do the trade and you do the trade. Then eventually uh, moving to strategy and trading, in which I'm, uh, you know, adding to the overall investment thesis of the firm and how to best, uh, you know, achieve performance for for the clients and in that uh, type of strategy role. So I I saw a lot of different sides of the industry, and uh, I absolutely love global macroeconomics. I guess that is where to start here. That is my uh, core interest is global macro and geopolitics. And <clears throat> to fast forward a little bit to Bitcoin, Bitcoin is at the center of global macro and geopolitics today. And I believe it'll be there for many years to come. So that is why I transitioned to Bitcoin from the bond industry, because that's where the world is going. The world is going toward Bitcoin and uh, digital currencies and a layered money system that uses Bitcoin at its core. So, you know, that's why I transitioned. And then I basically got an opportunity to start guest lecturing over at USC Marshall School of Business. I, I went to undergrad at USC. My dad and grandfather went to USC. So it was a huge honor for me to be invited to start speaking over there. And eventually they did invite me to be an adjunct professor to teach fixed income over there. So I teach the bond market uh, still at USC. I've taught the course four times. Uh, it'll be number five next spring in January um, when I go back. And I'm, I'm extremely thankful to be involved uh, as a rate specialist at USC Marshall teaching the bond industry through my eyes, through the treasury market, through the rates market, not necessarily credit and corporate, fin uh, corporate finance side, which is where a lot of the industry of, of asset management is stock picking and bond picking as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, when I started teaching at USC, uh, I started diving deeper down the monetary rabbit hole. I had already gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole before that uh, switch. And when I started reading a lot more about mo the monetary science and monetary history, I got this idea to write layered money from a paper called the inherent hierarchy of money written by Perry Merling. 
a famous um, economics and finance professor. I recommend people go check out his course on Coursera, Money and Banking. It's one of the most popular courses on the entire platform. And <clears throat> there's a lot of there's a lot of information there that I I learned from him and was able to apply to the Bitcoin world and came up with this idea for layered money. I love it. Yeah, I pers- I forgot to grab it. It's literally in my office uh, upstairs, but I own you know a copy. I've had a copy since you released it. So let's start with the origins of money and the evolution of monetary systems. Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Yeah, so we all think of money uh, in from the historical standpoint as something that we used as barter. So people are generally familiar with the idea that we used to use shells or beads, you know, depending or other, you know, animal bones, other artifacts, depending on where you were in the world as money, as tokens. And we use that so that we wouldn't have to trade, uh, you know, cattle for cotton. And you could actually, you know, have a medium of exchange, something that we all view as money. That general understanding of money, I think, is out there in the public. What I wanted to do was actually fast forward way past that and way past the even idea that gold and silver were a great form of money for our species in the form of jewelry, nuggets, just raw gold, raw silver, or refined, however. But at a certain point, and specifically in about the 6th, 7th century BC in Lydia, which is modern day Turkey, we had our first ever coin. And that was an advance in the monetary science. We had already agreed gold and silver were valuable across continents and across cultures and across generations. So something that had been well-established for already a couple thousand years. And then we said, let's standardize the units and accelerate the economy so that we don't have to have a weighing scale every time we transact. And that's really what it comes down to. Do you want to carry around a weighing scale to do business around the world or no? Do you want to use these convenient uh, predetermined weights and measures so that we can really accelerate trade and start using money quick, more quickly? And so I identified the coin as something that I you know, wanted to focus on. But then when I read this book called The Economy of Renaissance Florence, really searching for some of the original coins that got the economy going um, more quickly than, say, in the past, because the, the Greek and Roman empires also had coins, right? And now we're talking about uh, pre-Renaissance, which is let's call it a minimum of one millennium after the Roman empire, uh, you know, for example, Mm -hmm. I discovered this coin, uh, which was, it was a new concept to me in the research of the book of the Fiorino de Oro, the gold florin. It was a coin that was struck in the year 1252 AD. So right before the Renaissance started, um, started. And it was also struck, Uh, alongside a couple other coins in city republics in Northern Italy. So Pisa had one, Genoa had one, Venice had one. 
Venice's coin, uh, the Venetian coin, the Ducat, was also a very popular denomination. I chose not to focus on it in the book um, because it took away a little bit from the story of the florin and its impact. But the Ducat itself was a very important coin that held its weight and purity for a long time as well. But this gold florin held its weight and purity for over 300 years and was and ended up being used in Western Europe as the chosen denomination and what we would think of as the world reserve currency. And when I read that book and understood the Florin's role in the economy of Renaissance Florence, in the economy of Northern Italy, and also of Europe, and traced the Florin through time and watched the monetary system evolve in Antwerp, which was kind of part of that book and opened my eyes to what happened in the 15th century in Europe from the monetary and um, I guess money velocity side of things, the credit market side of things. Um, I, that's when I decided to start my story in that era of the Renaissance because the gold florin sets up perfectly for a story about money that leaves coinage and starts to go to credit money, which is the system that we use today. Our dollar money system is a credit system. It was a credit system before we left the gold standard in 1971, uh, because we were still using credit forms of money to grease the economy and to make it go. So that credit system, uh, I traced it to approximately the 13th, 14th, 15th century. Okay, so if you fast forward, you know, eight, nine hundred years from the 1200s, um, how would you describe the mechanics of our financial system now? So how does it work in a nutshell? Right. So we have this layered money system. That's the title of the book. It's a, it's a hierarchy of money. If we think about money, we can think about money in many different forms. Cash, paper, checking account deposits, uh, Venmo balance. Bitcoin in a wallet, Bitcoin on an exchange, um, Tether. There's a lot of forms of money. We can all agree on that. But these monetary forms are not equal. They actually have a rank. And the rank has to do with who issues the money that you're holding. For Bitcoin itself, nobody issues that money. So it kind of is a stand the standalone money that's not within the dollar layered money system, Bitcoin itself. And that makes it very unique. But in our system, say your checking account balance at Wells Fargo or Bank of America is issued by that bank. So it's a Wells Fargo liability. You think of it as your asset, but it's the bank's liability. They've issued it. Well, now what does the bank own to make that liability a sound money? Uh, or let's say a money with some backing. Well, uh, Wells Fargo owns U.S. Treasuries. They also own reserve balances at held at the Federal Reserve. They also own other forms of credit money, money issued to them, other bank deposits, money market funds, uh, repo financing balances, etc. All these other forms of assets, which you know, they're all forms of credit money, right? Because the Fed issues reserves to Wells Fargo. So Fed reserves are issued by the Federal Reserve. 
but still they're a liability of the Fed. Now, what does the Fed own? The Fed owns U.S. Treasuries. So in that way, and what I've described in the book, the first layer of money is U.S. Treasuries. Again, a debt, a debt instrument issued by the U.S. government, but held as the primary form of collateral in the dollar system. Why are we able to conclude that? Because the U.S. central bank owns U.S. Treasuries as its primary asset to uh, furnish the financial system with money. Then the Fed issues reserves and cash. So the cash in your pocket is a second layer money. And then the reserves that Wells Fargo keeps at the Fed is also a second layer money. Then the checking deposit that you have issued to you by Wells Fargo is actually a third layer of money. Your Venmo balance, which might be tied to your checking account, is conceivably a fourth layer of money. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I made a very deliberate choice to not go to a fourth layer in this book. So I stop at three because after that, I think the point is well made. I think readers would agree with that with, by this point. We don't have to illustrate Venmo, PayPal, other lower layers of money, Visa, let's say. But it's, it's, it's understood when you explain that your checking account balance is not the same thing as a U.S. Treasury. They're very different. And when we're in financial crisis, it becomes very apparent that not all forms of the dollar are the same. So that is the way that the U.S. dollar system works today. Gold, physical gold. Uh, coins and bars are not issued by any counterparty. They're bearer assets. They're commodities of sorts. They're not in the layered money system, but a gold ETF like share in GLD could be thought of as a second layer gold, Mm -hmm. for example. Uh, Bitcoin in your own wallet, paper wallet, software wallet, signing device, whatever form, that you hold those keys is also a commodity and a bearer instrument. It is not issued by anybody. Bitcoin held on an on a an exchange. Let's say you have your Bitcoin on Kraken or Gemini. That would would be theoretically a second layer of Bitcoin in that it's a liability issued to you by an exchange that holds Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So they have a first layer money. Uh, on their asset side, and they've issued a second layer of money, which is, you know, a deposit on the screen. It's a balance that says 0.4 Bitcoin. But uh, we know that that's not your Bitcoin until you withdraw it to your own wallet. And so in this way, the layered money system can describe the current dollar system, but it can also describe historically the gold system. It can also describe the new Bitcoin system. And it is evolving in that the, the word layer is blending itself into this construct. We have Lightning Network, which is why I first started writing about Bitcoin. I felt like um, the Lightning Network has unique financial properties to it that bring life and time value to Bitcoin in a very unique way. And it actually brings a layered system to Bitcoin that doesn't use counterparties. And that's what makes Lightning Network so fascinating to me. It uses smart contracts, these contracts called hashed time lock contracts. It uses basically an escrow escrow agreement and a multi-signature agreement that allows instant transactions of Bitcoin without counterparties. 
And um, that's why I started writing about Bitcoin. That's actually why I'm here in front of you today is that I wrote a paper called The Time Value of Bitcoin in 2018, in which I described this, this phenomenon about Lightning Network and about Bitcoin. So that's a little bit about layered money and about how our system, our monetary system today is layered in, in more ways than one. Yeah, I love it. So I think that you mentioned this earlier. Obviously, when you look at money, we talked about seashells to, you know, precious metals to, you know, fungible, you know, bills that had some backing to it. And then post 1971, we went on a fiat currency. Um, what are the next steps or the evolution in money and banking? You know, it's got to be, you know, digital. It's got to, it already is 90, I don't know, 5% digital, 97% digital. Uh, I think physical money only makes up 3% of the actual money supply. But um, it's got to be CBDCs. It's got to be Bitcoin. What are your thoughts on the evolution of uh, money or banking in general? Absolutely. It's going to be a co it's going to look like it already does today. Now, Bitcoin is small and Fedcoin doesn't exist. And <laughs> when I say Fedcoin, that's the nickname from, you know, nickname for the, the U.S. Forthcoming central bank digital currency. No, Nick, um, it's, it's, I, it, Nick, it's Freedom Coin. It's Freedom Coin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, the Ministry of Truth. That's right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, for I don't know if Fed Coin is two years away or five years away. I would guess closer to five than two. If you, if I had to put my money on it, mm -hmm. but we are heading into a world in which money is going to be natively digital, right? And so today, money is actually cr um, natively credit-based. So that's the system that we're in. Bitcoin is a digital native money. A Fedcoin will also be, in theory, a digitally native credit money. So again, blending the, the old with the new. And the future of money is going to be Bitcoin, other sorts of privately issued digital currencies. So that would include altcoins, non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies. It also includes stable coins, which are coins that are linked to a particular fiat currency, let's say the dollar, mm -hmm. and are backed by other dollar instruments or so other credit instruments. So it's a digitally native credit instrument that's backed by other traditional credit instruments. And then eventually the backing of those stable coins will be central bank digital currencies, which are digital currencies issued by the Fed. And we will transition from Fed reserves and bank deposits and Bitcoin where we are today to uh, Fed coin, stable coins and Bitcoin, which where we'll be tomorrow. And so it's uh, it'll still be a coexistence, Marco, of the uh, traditional world's liabilities and Bitcoin and these new liability, um, sorry, new tokens, new sort of bearer assets, commodities of sorts in the uh, cryptocurrency world. And all of these things will coexist. Now, what my belief is that Bitcoin starts to head to the top of the hierarchy of money. And how will we observe that? which financial institutions are using Bitcoin as their assets and which are not? And, and, what are, and what are people, what are financial institutions, companies 
using on the asset side of their balance sheets. Stable coins will obviously not be the asset of the stable coin issuer, right? A company might hold stable coins as an asset on their balance sheet because they believe the stable coin represents dollars because the stable coin issuer owns US treasuries or other uh, dollar-based instruments, okay? But the stable coin issuer has the choice should I own treasuries? Should I uh, own Fed coin? Should I own short-term fixed income instruments that have credit risk, like bank liabilities, bank deposits, um, euro dollar, uh, uh, euro dollar deposits, all these other forms of dollars, or Bitcoin? So we see that with Terra now. It's a dollar sort of coin, but using Bitcoin as a reserve function, because Bitcoin is a first layer money. That's really the point of this thesis. It is nobody's liability. It is completely neutral. And it can be viewed in this gold sort of way when we look at history, where if you own gold and you say you own gold and you have an audit that proves that you own gold, your liabilities become creditworthy. There is a trust embedded in that. So if people show Bitcoin on their balance sheet and even sign a transaction to show proof of reserves, which is the next level of this, something that I would definitely advocate for, but it's not a prerequisite here because the system is still built on trust in, in many ways. If the institution owns Bitcoin, says they own Bitcoin, shows an audit that they own Bitcoin or even signs a transaction that proves they own Bitcoin or lets us see like Terra does, we can see the address and I can go to my node and track how much they own mm -hmm. through time. How powerful is that as a proof of reserves uh, innovation in this new era? Yeah, it essentially eliminates trust in a good way. Would you agree with that? You don't have yes, to trust, it, you just verify. That's right. It does. It changes the equation from trust to verify. But I don't want to put the overemphasis on verify because not everybody is going to let you verify their situation. I hope that that's the evolution. But that's not a prerequisite to a layered money system evolving. We did that with just quarterly you know, reports and audits um, by the banks for the last couple centuries. And that's the, you know, and, and not even that. Yeah. And so, Enron did those too. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so there will be bad actors. There will be bankruptcies that will exist in the new era. I mean, there's no way we won't have a repeat in which everybody just do, does proof of reserves. We have verified balances all over the system and there's never a default because there's full transparency. It's naive to think that mm -hmm. we will have that. Uh, transparency as well as uh, the Enron way. Those both will happen. We have to expect that that happens. But what you're saying is that it does give us this new ability. It's empowering to the individual. It's empowering to the person that doesn't have um, access to audits, let's say. All they have to have is a node and those sort of mechanisms are now being built into the psyche 
of money in which Terra, you know, which is the, the most uh, current use case of this sort of thing, they have, uh, we can see their, their wallet, right? In, in your node, in your block explorer, you can go see how much Bitcoin they have. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it's, it's a changing balance of how we're going through this. There will be Bitcoin-backed uh, stable coins that are linked to Bitcoin that are just credit instruments that have a fractional reserve uh, relationship to Bitcoin, but still trade at or near par to Bitcoin because of arbitrage and trust. And the simple idea that not everyone calls their deposit on the same day. That's the, the foundational premise of fa- fractional reserve banking. It's not, not everyone is going to come demand their deposit today. Not everyone's going to pull their gold, gold coin out today. So you can issue more gold deposits than you have gold coins in your vault. We should expect that type of situation to occur in Bitcoin as well. Now, again, the most empowering thing about Bitcoin is that if you own the commodity, you know exactly the slice of the 21 million that you own or the current 19 million that you own. We always will do that with 100% certainty. That is the empowering thing about Bitcoin. But it will still lead to many financial innovations that have mimicked things in the past. We'll have fractional reserve. We'll have default. We'll have financial prices. We already have exchanges that have gone bust and have basically uh, robbed people of their money mm-hmm. many times in the past in Bitcoin. We don't, we actually haven't had a knock on wood, a big exchange hack US based or, you know, Western based in a while. But again, we had Quadrica just, you know, that wasn't that long ago. That was what, two years ago. And that was Canada. So there, there's always potential for fraud but there's uh, there's Bitcoin still, you know, brings that empowerment innovation. Yeah, I love that. So knowing what you know, coming from like traditional finance or fixed income, and obviously knowing what you and I know is essentially going to be inevitable in some form, you know, currencies, digital, you know, everything that we're talking about in this episode. How are you setting yourself up for success? So I guess in a nutshell, how are you investing? Yeah, uh, so... It's a core long position in Bitcoin that's not traded. I think that it's something I've shared publicly uh, before. It's that is the way that I think about things is that I, you know, it's a it's a core position, meaning it's a large position. It is uh, a safety position. I look at it as a risk free position because it doesn't have counterparty risk and and I look at it over a very long time horizon. And I'm uh, because I think that this adoption cycle is still early. We're still early in it. And so I believe in Bitcoin over a very long term time horizon. And that's the way that I'm invested. And that's the way that I'm positioned. And when you say now, long term, uh, sorry to interrupt, Nick, when you yeah. say long term, are you talking a year, five years, 20 years? What do you mean by long term, just for the audience? Yes, it's a minimum of 10 years. It's a minimum of 10 years. And it's much likely much more than that. Now, I, I struggle to say more than 10 years because who knows what's going to happen? How can you project more than 10 years? How can mm-hmm. you project more than one year? It's, it's impossible. 
I also, when I write for the Bitcoin layer, my Substack publication, um, you, you know, I, I'm not writing with this five to 10 year time horizon uh, when I'm talking about the markets and where I think things are going. I'm looking three to six to 12 months at a time. Now I have a thesis that Bitcoin is going to be around for a hundred years, mm-hmm. but I can only prove that to myself five years at a time. Oh, are we still, I believed in 2016, we're on track for this hundred year journey in Bitcoin. Six years later, my thesis is still on track and it's confirmed and it's probably a little bit stronger than it was six years ago. But I, I have to assess that again in six years. And, and again, because life is uncertain and things happen, right? And we just don't know what's going to happen. But the way I think of the world is that Bitcoin is going to be around for 100 years. So I should be positioned for the next 10 years to have Bitcoin as my core position on that journey as I vet out my own thesis, whether or not I'm right about this. But yes, I believe that Bitcoin is going to enter the realm of gold, which would make it about, let's say, 15 times its current size. Okay, that would be about a half million dollars per coin, Mm a $20 trillion market cap. I believe that's a very, the very minimum benchmark of where we're heading over the long term. So five years, 20 years, whatever, I don't know, but we're heading towards gold at least because of what Bitcoin is and how it was modeled and how it's evolved in, you know, 14 years, uh, incredibly uh, resilient on its path to becoming digital gold. That's the very minimum. Mm -hmm. But then I look at stock markets, bond markets and real estate markets around the world, which Bitcoin is competing with, not necessarily the dollar. That's something that I've written about at the Bitcoin layer, Bitcoin versus the dollar isn't a great juxtaposition. It's like Bitcoin versus equities, Bitcoin versus real estate, Bitcoin versus gold. These are, I think, better ways to think about Bitcoin because the dollar is just a denomination and it's a liability issued by a multitude of counterparties across the world with very little uh, consensus as to what is a dollar anymore. Of course. So, and what, I, right. Yeah, one of my, one of my, sorry to interrupt, one of my pet peeves are like, well, Bitcoin is still denominated in dollars. Well, yeah, I mean, one sat is one sat. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. You know, at the end of the day, there's a finite amount of one thing and an arbitrary amount of the other. Right. And I, you know, when I charge sats for books, um, you know, in person or online, uh, you know, it's, we sometimes we strike a dollar price and some and convert it to sats and do it like that or sometimes it's just this is the sats price that it is and that's the price so sometimes i'll admit at the beginning thinking more in dollars but then the more you use sats and lightning network and you're using this denomination of bitcoin bitcoin and satoshis are like dollars and cents it's the same thing you think in sats you think in bitcoin it's a denomination itself and there is a, an online economy that is Bitcoin and sats native in which the people no longer are thinking in terms of dollars or swapping back into dollars. Now, I realize that it's hard to probably measure that. We can look at the size of the Bitcoin economy and we can do a survey and say how many people are swapping it back, how many people are actually thinking in sats and not, you know, with their calculator converting into dollars and not. (laughs) But I promise you, 
that the number is non-zero, meaning that people are already switched over, right? I can with confidence tell you that I'm in the process of switching over my denomination, but in no way fully. Now, when I do book sales online, I can think in sats. Now, sometimes with my subscriptions and my online Bitcoin income, I'm thinking in Bitcoin and I'm not thinking in dollars because I don't swap that back, right? Now, but I have bills, I have a mortgage, I have dollar-based income, I have dollar-based expenses every day. So I haven't switched my entire mental denomination, but part of it has. Some people are much farther along than I am and some people have gone 100%. And over a long time horizon, the number of people that go 100% will increase, the number of people that go to 10% will increase, 50% will increase, and the number of people that go off of zero will also increase. All of those will happen exponentially and all of those trends are locked in. So hence my thesis of Bitcoin's gonna be around for a minimum of 10 years, what I think 100 years, and a core investment that one should own in this revaluation period. Absolutely, I think we're in a huge uh, period, whether you wanna call it revaluation or just the next paradigm of money, um, I think it's discovery. inevitable. Yeah, discovery, exactly. It's like you went from like uh, the internal combustion engine to like the Model T, then now we're kind of like in this electrical vehicle kind of a phase. I think the same thing is happening in money for sure. And that's why I don't trade and I don't, I don't, I mean, I look at price. I look at price all the time. I do price charts. I'm doing price analysis. I love technical analysis. It's part of my framework itself. It's part of what led me to Bitcoin. But I'm not actively trading Bitcoin because the core thesis is this binary world of Bitcoin is either not really that important to the world or it is a core feature of the world economy. That's my, that's my best guess. That's mm -hmm. my thesis. So that's why I'm positioned over the long-term time horizon in this asset, not trying to trade around it because I believe in a $500,000 valuation, million dollar valuation per coin. So why get cute in the interim? Of course, I don't, I don't stake it. Um, I would stake maybe like USDC or something along those lines to where it's just, you know, taking fiat, buying a stable coin and staking it. But for me, it's not worth five, six, seven, eight percent to potentially lose one of the greatest assets that I'm ever going to hold, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. So I don't, I don't get cute either. Um, I live by that Matt Odell paradigm, you know, just stay humble and stack sets. It's really the best yeah. way to kind of uh, approach Bitcoin. Um, there is room for kind of like, you know, shit coinery and butt floss coin and all these things that are obviously just scams. Um, speaking of which, do you own anything? Do you speculate in any other uh, cryptocurrencies or are you kind of just Bitcoin only? No, I'm 100% Bitcoin only. And the only time when I wasn't was when the Bcash fork happened. And um, I tried to time a trade back to Bitcoin, um, which I which I did uh, in the first few months of that coin existing. So no, I've never I've never actually purchased uh, an altcoin um, ever. Mm -hmm. And I don't plan on it because, again, I think that that's also trying to it's not it's not factoring in the investment thesis, which Bitcoin is the network that is attracting everything. So I'm not I don't really play the stock market. I don't own I don't make individual stock plays. So because I'm more of a macro oriented person, 
So I just like to think in terms of asset classes and, um, you know, that can change, right? It, it, these can all change. I might find an investment that I like and, you know, allocate to it, uh, you know, in the equity world or something like that. But just in terms of Bitcoin and the thesis, that's the way I keep it. And I will say, though, that, you know, just in being transparent, I have invested in the past some of my Bitcoin in Bitcoin denominated uh, return opportunities. So that's mm -hmm. as specific as I'll get. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, people trying to make more money in Bitcoin denomination and getting a return. And I've had some success and I've had some failures in that. And so I, I have experimented there. But I haven't experimented or, or and I never intend to with any other um, coin. Now, I will say also that I'm open to in the future investing Bitcoin into uh, a project that will promise back Bitcoin, you know, or it's a Bitcoin denominated vehicle or something like that. I am still open to that kind of thing. Um, and it's something that I would consider, let's say. And so I want to be transparent about that. But in terms of the core position, it's a long position and it doesn't have a counterparty. Uh, I know that with, with certainty. And that is something that, um, it's something that I believe if I overthink it or try to, again, like get cute or try to, allocate too much of it to projects that might promise back Bitcoin that uh, I can get hosed. And I, I'm not being true to my original thesis. So um, that's how I, that's how I approach my portfolio. Yeah, I love it. I'm very similar as to you. Just kind of stay humble. You know, the, I think long term, we're all going to make it. You know, not to, you know, cliche aside, I really do believe that. Um, for the people that may not understand or think you're like a crazy person, how are you coming up with the numbers for a $500,000 Bitcoin? I know how you are, but just give some, right. you know, market caps of gold and stuff like that. How are you coming up with that number? Sure. So uh, right now, Bitcoin is at approximately three quarters of a trillion dollar market cap. That means the size of all Bitcoin in circulation, the market size is about $750 billion. Now that topped 1 trillion last year, um, a couple times, mm -hmm. uh, we were above a $1 trillion market cap. So let's say for general purposes, Bitcoin's about a $1 trillion market cap today. That equates to about 50,000. I know we're less, but let's say 50,000 times 20 million coins. Right now we're at 19 million odd coins. So let's round that up to 20 million, round the price to 50,000, 50, and we get to a $1 trillion market cap. Mm -hmm. So that's the math of where we are today or the average, let's say, the last year. Gold as an asset class is at about 10 to $12 trillion, depending on what estimates you use. So when I said earlier in this conversation about 15 times, I was multiplying 750 billion by 15 to get to about 1.1, 1 to 1.1, um, sorry, 10 to 11 trillion. Okay. So 
let's call it 10 to be even number and let's keep the number of coins at 20 million. $10 trillion Bitcoin would be catching gold in terms of its total size to the market, to the world. And that would equate to 10 trillion divided by 20 million is 500,000. Yep. So, so that's, that's, that's how you come up. Yep. That's how you come up with that. That's price. 10. That's 10 X of where we are today. The 500,000 number is the number that I wrote in the book. So that I, there's some posterity there that I said, Hey, this is where I think it's going. I think it's going to 500,000. I get that number by multiplying 500,000 by 20 million coins is 10 trillion market cap. That's what, how much gold is in the world today. That's where I think we're going. Now to get above 500,000 to get to, let's say a million, you're going to 20 trillion in market cap. Now I look at US treasuries today, the market for US treasuries is 30 trillion by itself. That's this base money. And I look at stocks, 100 trillion, bonds, 100 trillion, real estate, several hundred trillion. So we're looking at, let's say, three, four, five hundred trillion in investable assets around the world. Ten trillion of that is in gold. To thirty trillion of it's in treasury. So to get to a million dollar Bitcoin, you'd have to get to twenty trillion dollars of market cap of Bitcoin. The twenty is arbitrary. The million is arbitrary. It's where I think we're going because I think that Bitcoin is going to go past gold on its way to other asset classes. I'm not going to speculate much past a million dollars. It's, it's, I, I, it's, it wouldn't be, people would say it's irresponsible of you to speculate. It's a million dollars. It's not, I don't think it's irresponsible to compare it to gold and say 500,000. That's where I think the benchmark is us treasuries are at 30 trillion, which would be a million and a half dollar Bitcoin. I don't think Bitcoin is going to rival U.S. treasuries in the next 10 years as an asset, let's say, five to 10 years. So that's the range that I'm thinking in. And um, that's how I get to half a million to a million dollar Bitcoin. It's not something that I think is going to happen anytime soon. I don't know when it's going to happen. It's it's just not, it's not responsible of me to even get too specific with the projections. It just, I just am outlining this is where I think something is going over the long term. It's why I'm invested in it. If, if we all knew when the price was going there, life would be so much easier than it is uh, today. Um, you know, yeah, I've, of course, I've managed and, my in the past. It's just it, nothing is that easy. Yeah, and I wasn't holding you to anything. I was just trying to uh, explain to the audience like there's obviously reasoning behind how you got to those numbers. It wasn't just you're pulling yes. five hundred grand, you know, out of your butt. Um, so I got a question from a viewer um, or a follower on Twitter. They said, "How would Nick go about explaining to a five year old the role of the euro dollar system in the Great Financial Crisis?" So I know this isn't the best transition, but I was actually interested about this as well. Do you have any input on that? Sure. So, it, so assuming that a five-year-old uh, can grasp the difference between a paper note issued by the Fed and the bank deposit that they have to go to the bank to withdraw, those two forms of money are the forms of money that a child could recognize. 
paper issued by the government or a deposit issued by the bank. To explain it to a five-year-old, the role is that you think that this dollar and this dollar are the same. Well, guess what? There's a third type of dollar. It's issued by banks outside of this country and you can't trade those dollars for the paper. So it's not actually the same type of dollar, but over 50 years, those $3 got mixed together in the global economy and one of them was not like the other <laughs> and it broke the system. That's the easiest way to explain it. Um, to get more complex, you know, I get into that in, in Layered Money. Uh, where I talk about the origins of the euro dollar system, why dollars were issued outside of the United States, what was the use case for that? Was it some evil uh, plan? No, it's actually uh, just emerged from different ways that the financial system needed, needed to operate. They needed to borrow dollars to spend dollars and they couldn't get the dollars from New York, so they had to get them from London. And how did London get them? Well, they had some paper dollars, but then they made a lot of them up. And then they made more up and then they made more up. And then it, it, it snowballed over the course of basically 50 years from its inception. So from the people that don't understand what the euro dollar system is, what is that in a nutshell? <laughs> the euro dollar system is the third type of dollar to go back to the original example. You have paper dollars in the United States and you have checking account dollars in the United States. Those are both real dollars. You can trade one for the other and they both uh, exist in this real dollar world. And then you have fake dollars that were issued in Europe by European banks, that hence Euro dollars. And they're not real dollars. They were never real dollars, but they got commingled with the rest of the world, world's dollars, as we, um, you know, as 50 years went by. But in 2007, those fake dollars, those euro dollars, that system started to break. And the trust in that system that those dollars could ever one day be exchanged for real dollars started to break. Mm -hmm. And the Fed had to come and rescue the euro dollar system in December of 2007. And it essentially made all the fake dollars in the world somewhat backed by the Fed. So now those are quasi real dollars because of the Fed's swap line with the ECB in December 2007. That is the system that we currently live under. And it is why... August to December 2007 is the key time in history that will define the dollar system and whatever direction it goes. Because we had a system like a lot of people like to think of 1971 and pre-1971 and post-1971 because the gold standard were actually, actually the euro dollar system started in the 50s. It did not it did not make the U.S. go off the gold standard, but I would say that um, it could have had a role in that. It wasn't the main reason, but because it was still very early in existence. But then in 2007, the euro dollar system broke. So in, we are in a pre-post-2007 
world in which in the post 2007 world, the Fed has bailed out the euro dollar system, the fake dollar system. Mm -hmm. And they have had to exercise that bailout more than once since 2007. In fact, several times as the ECB has tapped its swap line with the Fed or used the guarantee of an increased facility to calm trust in the market because basically the Fed the Fed will bail out if anything happens, the euro dollar system. So it is a little probably simplistic and cynical to label it the fake dollar system versus the real dollar system, right? The more accurate is onshore versus offshore dollar system. But if you want to explain it to a five-year-old, real and fake is a good way to start the conversation. Mm-hmm. Then if you want to go to a 15-year-old, you can give them layered money because teenagers <laughs> have uh, been able to understand some of these concepts, or so I've been told. So um, that's what I would say about that. Love it. Okay, so we're about 50 minutes into this podcast, uh, give or take, uh, depending on editing, which there probably won't be any because this is a great podcast and I really don't edit my episodes to begin with. Um, I guess my point is 100 years from now, you know, gun to your head, what do, what do you think the world would be like after you and I have already you know passed away, we've lived our lives? What does the finance system look like 100 years from now, if you had to guess? Yeah, you know, um, I think that the state's role uh, in issuance is, will eventually die out. So that's not something that I, it's not something that I write about a lot because it's not something that's on the 10 to 20 year horizon mm-hmm. where the dollar is going away. But if you're talking about 100 years and, you know, after we're gone, uh, I do think that state money dies. Um, I, I just think that that's the way that it's going. Uh, I don't see any role for the state in money in the future as uh, Bitcoin and digital system evolves and we can have counter, we can have issuers issuing currencies using other currencies in a layered money format but there's no really uh room for the state to issue currencies we might have still have state issued debt like u.s treasuries will probably be around in 100 years right uh the treasuries will be denominated in dollars but we might not have a fed Mm -hmm. and um we might not have private banks in the United States issuing dollars. They'll be issuing, they'll be issuing something else. It's kind of like the banks the, will exist. Sorry. It's kind of like the sovereign individual route, if you will. It is, it is. And, uh, that book is, it's so poignant. And, um, you know, we look, we read it now and we see the projections and our minds are blown. Just wait another 50 <laughs> years for some of that stuff to come true. And it will take, you know, it will take a longer time, uh, I think, than 10 years for, for the state to leave money. I think a much longer time. But then if you want to talk about 100 years, yeah, I think it does. Yeah, I think, to be honest, man, it's this this whole, like, with uh, COVID and all this stuff, and I know you're in California, I'm in greater Cleveland, I'm in Ohio, um, so a little bit different in terms of, like, mandates and stuff like that. But I think this was a big wake up call as to how many people will just, you know, blindly just go with anything. So I do feel feel like CBDCs, 
I mean, if they offer some sort of incentive, because if you remember with like the vaccines and all that, they're offering like a lottery and gifts and, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts and all this stuff. I feel like people, you know, download the app and, you know, uh, embrace, you know, Fed coin or Freedom coin, you know, very easily. So I feel like I agree with you, but I feel like, you know, state money, it's still going to be here through CBDCs, whether people know it or not. I just feel like I'd say 80 to 90% of the population just doesn't really want to learn or know about stuff like this. I'm not saying they're ignorant or anything like that. They just don't know. You know what I mean? They don't yeah, know what they you, don't know. You, you bring up a, a great point. This is why I think CBDCs will come into existence and they will be around for a long time because, uh, and it will guarantee that state money stays around like we're talking about and why state money is not going anywhere because part of what the Fed and the government are going to do eventually with a CBDC is use it as their universal basic income tool. Exactly. So, uh, you know, if, if you have a child, you're probably getting that child credit, um, you know, into your bank account, uh, those sort of, and then the pandemic assistance that people were getting UBI is already kind of baked into the mix mm -hmm. in terms of fiscal policy, bipartisan in the United States. So a CBDC becomes a, uh, a much easier medium of delivery for the UBI. It's like airdropping so, the incentives or the stimulus. I mean, isn't it very easy, Marco, to imagine an airdrop of your Fed coin <laughs> as an incentive to download no. your wallet? Hey, activate your no. wallet. You get your first hundred bucks. You know, everybody, you know, hundred dollars per household. You know it's coming, dude. For you sure. You know it's coming. For sure. Uh, it's it's just the way that states function. And, um, you know, it is about power and control. And, uh, you know, uh, although the sovereign individual thesis is an essential one and it's driven, I think it's driven some change in this world for the better. I think it will continue to. We still have the state. Uh, there are still important functions of the state. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, and so... All of that does have to coexist, and I, I don't think that in my lifetime, in the next decade, two decades, three decades, that I'm looking at uh, the elimination of state from money um, or you know reversing some of these. So we have the sovereign trends, but we also have the trends on the state side that we have to observe, Absolutely. and that's, that's growing government, UBI, you know, U.S. Treasuries exceeding 30 trillion in supply, that's going to go to 50 trillion. It'll one day get to a hundred trillion as the numbers start to bend our minds. And it just, those trends are important to observe too. And uh, they'll likely persist. Yeah. I bought uh, Andrew Yang's book. I still haven't read it yet, but I know that he's a big proponent of UBI. And, you know, if you look at how technology is going, you know, his example that he always uses are, you know, truckers, you know, so people in the Midwest or, you know, rural areas, you know, being a trucker is a good way to make a living. You know, what happens when that gets automated, for example, you know, all those jobs are going to go away. So he's a big proponent of UBI and things like that. Obviously, that's just one example, but I do feel like technology in general is going to displace a lot of jobs. But on the other side, you know, it could create other jobs as well. I'm just not smart enough and I haven't studied it long enough to really understand what that discrepancy is going to be, be uh, between jobs eliminated and jobs created. 
Um, what are your thoughts just in general, like on technology and stuff like that with UBI playing I, a role? I think, uh, I think, um, you know, unemployment insurance is something that has decades of precedent here in this country. So unemployment insurance, insurance, it will serve the function that you're talking about. So maybe extended unemployment insurance. I don't think that's the UBI use case. It's not necessarily the automation, the job market. Job market evolves. People lose jobs. They get new jobs. They they train. Hopefully they have some assistance to bridge the gap. That's not necessarily UBI. UBI, in my opinion, it will come in a more palatable form if you're taking away or you're eliminating programs that cost the government money and putting that money into people's pockets through UBI because you have FedCoin and an easy delivery mechanism. You also have more, let's say, hopefully in the future, more transparent accounting in terms of when money is coming in and where it's going out to. Mm -hmm. um, and so I look for UBI to hopefully be a replacement of social programs as a way to give people more power over the money that they pay in their tax system and, and all that. So that's, that's the huge optimist in me um, in terms of, you know, I think UBI is coming. I'm not, I don't think that, um, listen, I think the government spends way too much and the, the debt that the United States government is, is in is a function of poor fiscal policy, bipartisan over many, many decades. Mm -hmm. Agreed. But, you know, that's the situation we're already in. So unless we're going to reverse that trend, which doesn't seem to be likely, <laughs> look at the trend that's going, which is spending more. So if you're going to spend, give the money to the people, don't have the government make the decisions to allocate the money because the government is not great at allocating money. We have proven that because of the, the deficit and the debt numbers, they're just not very good at it. But there's a role for, again, there's a role of government. And so what is that role? Um, you know, I, those are some of my thoughts about the role of government and the role of UBI uh, going forward as we get FedCoin. Love it. Okay, so we are coming up to an hour here, Nick. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I always ask my guests, you know, if you can leave the audience with one nugget of information, whether it's a book, an article, you know, a movie, whatever, you know, a quote, doesn't matter. Um, what would you leave the audience with today? Okay, good one. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. It's, 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 um, so actually, here's here's the one one book that I'd recommend to people uh, right now. It's uh, I'm not sure if you covered this in your Bitcoin books for beginners, but uh, Bitcoin is Venice. Um, this is by Alan Alan Farrington and Sasha Myers that came out very recently. The book is filled with dreams about Bitcoin, and I find it so fascinating to dream about. A Bitcoin future and all these ways that Bitcoin is changing us as people. So I would I would recommend people to go to go read that and dream about the next 10 to 30 to 50 years of this world with Bitcoin in it and um, and how Bitcoin can make the world a better place. And that's that's where I'm spending a lot of my time. 
I love it, especially the geopolitical climate now. Um, you know, when people say Bitcoin will end wars, um, that's not necessarily like a tongue-in-cheek comment. You know, some people take that literally, and there's reasons for that, which I'm not going to expand that rabbit hole because we're at the end of the podcast. But uh, I actually sat next to Alan Farrington um, on the bus on the way to the Bitcoin conference, not this year, but last year. He was staying at my hotel, and we were both running late for this bus, and we're like, oh, you know, and then I'm like, oh, who are you? And he's like, oh, who are you? And it's like, oh, no shit. <laughs> you know, it was kind of funny. Um, but, yeah, I remember his original article when it came out. Um, I wasn't aware that it was made into a book. Is that just an expanded version? or is that just the article itself rewritten into a book no no there are there are dozens and dozens of essays in there about um just different ways to describe bitcoin imagine it um and i i i'm really fascinated by it love it okay nick thank I'm, you so I'm, I'm, I'm also uh i'm also uh the time value of bitcoin my original work about lightning and layers of bitcoin is included in in one of his essays so there's a there's a there's a plug for me within the book, which uh, I'm not I'm not too uh, sad about. No, no, no. That's perfectly fine, man. You provide so much value on these podcasts. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people follow you or learn more about you? Absolutely. So people can find all of my links at layeredmoney.com. So you can find links to the book on Amazon, the audio book as well. Uh, there's a link to my Substack publication, which we've talked about in this interview called The Bitcoin Layer. Or you can find that directly at the bitcoinlayer.substack.com. And uh, everyone can find me on Twitter at, at time value of BTC. Perfect. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Nick. I appreciate it, buddy. Nice talking to you. Thanks to you too, Marco. Thank you for listening to the Whiteboard Finance Show. To read more about today's episode, visit whiteboardfinance.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Whiteboard Finance on YouTube. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. While it is possible to minimize your risk, your investments are solely your responsibility. This show is copyrighted by Zlatic Media LLC. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or broadcasting.